0: Hi, dear Bumblebee. Hi, Jen Ponton. Oh fuck! Hi, Lillian Busson. Hello. Hello.
1: It's so good to see you here on all the fuck. You too. I missed you, and people missed us. Yeah, I missed you too, and and I know I see that people missed us. Um, thank you guys for, uh, for prioritizing us and enjoying us and letting us come be with you. Hello, Sabine.
0: Yeah. She was busy being a closet monster. I didn't even (laughs) know she was in here. I gotta gotta let her out. Hang on. (laughs) Boy, she gets weirder like every minute.
1: (laughs) She really does. Um, I've missed you. I've missed our show. I've missed recording. We've had um, an intense couple weeks with like car stuff and birthday stuff and and life stuff and vacation stuff. And... um, we miss you guys. And well, we have back. some great guests lined up. Oh shit, we sure do.
0: E- we're and we're gonna very start very amped about that. Start shaking the trees for some more people. Yes. Um and uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for reaching out. I know that some people are like, is my iTunes broken? Like what happened? Oh my god, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. We're just slackers.
1: No, we're just taking our first break. Um uh, in like over a year, uh, and we're coming at you like imminently. But it just kind of like around my birthday, I was like, oh, oh, well, and uh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Brain dissolves. <laughs> Brain dissolves. Um, but it's so wonderful to see you. You
0: too. And it was fun to go swimming with you. Oh. Uh, did you know that you can actually? There's like an Airbnb for pools. No. It's called it's called Swimply. <laughs>
1: Uh-huh, I'm writing this down. This is uh, your recommendation yes. for the day?
0: Yes, this is my recommendation for the day. I love it. I have not used it, but it looks pretty straightforward. I mean, just like with anything else, it could be a disaster. Mm. <laughs> Depending so, on who is renting you the place. For sure. But, Swimply,
1: like simply, but with a, with a wimp. strange <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the whimper. Yes.
0: <gasps> not with a bang. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there's like some really nice ones. Not too far from here, so nice. Figure that out.
1: Um, do you wanna plan like a friggin' pool party day?
0: Uh maybe. Um some of them have a cap on how many people you can bring. Um
1: but What if yeah. pool party like, is four more. people?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's my speed. That's my speed. Great. It's always a party with you. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. wonderful. That's cause I constantly play club music wherever I go. What is love? Exactly. Lady, don't drop me. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, uh, Fourth of July was fine. Uh, We had a nice time. I went to the beach with my sister and her family. And yesterday, Don and I celebrated uh, 20 years since our first kiss in Central Park. Oh, fuck! I think it might have actually technically been Saturday, but we celebrated it yesterday. That was that was our oh, kiss anniversary observed. So we went to Jacob's Pickles, and and um, for the first time in the longest time, I was like, "Oh no, am am I too old for brunch?" Because we went and sat down, and there they had a DJ, and it was so loud inside that we were people, everyone was screaming to be heard. Um, and uh-huh. I, I asked the Don was like, we sat down, and his eyes were bugging out. And I was like, "Go go grab her, go grab the host and see." and i was like can we sit in the back she was like it's loud everywhere and i was like great So we not be so we sat outside and i sweated for a minute but then i was fine um but yeah i genuinely i understand having music that's up so loud at night at a dance club because then it's like you don't have to talk you can just grind on people that's as far as I understand, the reason for having music so loud is that, like, there's no pressure to have a great conversation. You can just drink wow. and dry hunt people. Um But that's
1: not what brunch <laughs> is. <laughs> <Mm-mm>. <laughs> I mean, generally. That's not fucking brunch. And also, not for nothing, like, I realize every... First of all, everybody's so fucked up. Everybody is so fucked up. Um, but, like... And so, yeah, I'm sure there are some people who are like, yes, just party on me. Just, I need to go to one unending party. Sure. <laughs> but don't we also, like, miss commuting with people? Right. Isn't there some, like, right, yeah. Yeah. People are so foobar, Lillian. I cannot tell you every single fucking time I get on the mm, highway. Yeah.
0: People can't drive at all right now. Every single
1: goddamn yep. time. It's like a defensive driving
0: course, <laughs> And I'm
1: like... You're making me not want to leave my house yet uh-huh. again. Yep. And I am not down with yep. that.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. We had multiple situations on our way to Maryland where I was like, I, who, who how, and I, you know, I'm a non driver and I'm still yeah, like, I know that's right. fucked
1: up. Yes. <sighs> it's been a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I will say, I will say in the, in the grand, um, in the grand, like, epoch. <laughs> Sure. Epoch? That—that that, you say that word? Epic. The grand yeah, epoch, epoch of of like coming out of the quarantine and my particular growing pains of like help. And <laughs> at the point, I'm at the point where I don't feel amazing in crowded indoor places, but I can I can be indoors. I can go eat. I am now starting to forget my mask, which I don't. Love, especially because they're like interesting though. There are more variants, and they're getting worse. And I'm like, yeah, I know this is temporary. Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm just trying to enjoy a little bit because I missed out on the enjoyment of the actual lull last year. Right. Our numbers. I mean, and one could surmise that I was actually doing exactly what I should have because I'm. People who were doing what I was doing are the reason the numbers were so low. Right. But still, I was like, oh, there was like one time last year that doing <laughs> stuff was yes. sort of ish, safe-ish. Yeah. And I didn't take advantage of it. And now I'm like, okay, well, I am vaccinated and I am safe as far as the science goes right now. Right. And I know the science is going to change, but it, 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 it's not quite yet. So. Right.
0: Right. So, go see a movie. <laughs> Which I did! Oh. Yesterday, I
1: saw A Quiet Place 2! Oh my god, did you like and it? And I liked it a lot. Yeah, actually. I did too. I yes. thought they did a really good job. I thought they did a great job. Although, I will say, I don't unlike the plot line of... Sorry for spoiler alerts, guys. I'm going to try to not be super spoilery. But, like, the, the plot slug... Of The film is, like, there's more danger to fear out there than than just the aliens. And then there's this weird thing where, like, people come and descend upon them and they've got bloodshot eyes and shit. And I'm like, oh, fuck, is this going to turn into a zombie thing?
0: Right, right, right. And then it
1: didn't. Then they totally abandoned it, which makes me wonder if that was, like, a B plot line and it ended up on the cutting room floor. Ooh, maybe. Because... Nobody explained that, and their eyes definitely looked hmm. bloodshot. And like the and like the the male lead in this one sort of alluded to it, like they're not the kind of people who 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 deserve saving. And like, yeah. So you you kind of set it up for humankind to have really monstrified, which they like they do. They're dicks, but <laughs> it's only in this like four minute scene, which is exclusively action, and you learn literally nothing about yeah. them. Yeah, that was a little weird. So That's I do fair. wonder what was left on the cutting room floor there. Okay. Uh, but I thought it was very good. I think I. I believe that the young actress who is deaf oh and who she is fantastic. She's so good. She's, she's so good. So good. She's so cute. You know what? She looks like she could be the sister of the kid who plays Dustin on Stranger Things. Oh, she sure does. They both have really similar facial structure, and I think that further endears her to me. Yes, I um, can aside get that. from her and the guy who, the kid who plays her brother yeah so good yeah yeah
0: yeah his Kids. his last his last scene before the denouement was like oh mm. my god
1: so amazing him and and emily blunt's fucking killing it and kieran kieran Hines. i don't know the don't the know guy either. is fine the guy's sure. fine he's <laughs> great
0: <laughs> as opposed he's to he's not. Fun. he's
1: good <laughs> i just i'm tired of men <laughs>
0: oh that's fair <laughs>
1: Especially when there are two black characters and each of them get picked off immediately. And I'm like, come on. You could have just made the family friend black and made him the fucking grown-up hero Uh instead of casting this Irish motherfucker.
0: Yep. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think that that's that's still the thing to unravel about diversity versus tokenism in in media. Because people think that they're doing a good job. But then you're like, wait, but what? Like just because you cast people, just because you gave someone a job doesn't mean you're portraying them in a way that's necessarily helping anybody.
1: Right. We gotta be heroes. We gotta we gotta be heroes. We gotta make it to the end of the film. Right. We've gotta last several seasons on a show. And please don't don't kill uh marginalized folks off like that. Like nice. there were two two and they were used in sacrificial Ways and I was like, This uh, is yeah. fucked up. Uh huh. Yep. Um. And I was like, Ah, oh, I really wish this were not happening in 2021. Mm. In, in a movie made by actors, no less. Here's
0: something great that's happening in 2021. Our friend Jana Schmieding. Yes. Do you know what she's
1: doing? Jana. Okay. So, uh, fuck buddies. Jana Schmieding is a wonderful indigenous, I think she's Lakota woman who is a stand-up comic and a comedy writer and she uh, and fat and she ran a podcast called woman of size that Lillian and I have both guested on a couple of times fucking love Jana she's out in LA doing a lot of fat female representation and a ton of indigenous representation you do not find indigenous folks in film and tv almost at all and so she's really repping on two very marginalized levels and she was i don't know what happened first whether she was cast in or whether she was part of the writer's room i want to say she was in the writer's room first because i remember this happening Mm -hmm. mike sure who is the showrunner of so many amazing things like parks and rec and the good place and he's and brooklyn nine nine and mike sure is just like literally one of my personal heroes Mike Sure was creating this um, this uh, lab basically for under underrepresented uh, voices, and I believe he was looking for writers, maybe writer talents, and Jana. Got involved in that, and it turned into this show on Peacock called Rutherford Falls. I'm so proud, and I'm so
0: excited, and I can't believe I didn't know about it, and I can't wait to watch all of it. Oh,
1: you only just found out? Yeah,
0: I found out because oh. somebody else was tw- was like tweeting about it. I don't. I'm not good at keeping up with things like that. I knew that she sure. had stopped the podcast because again, it wasn't coming into my feed, and I knew right. that that was probably like two years ago or something. And occasionally, I think I would check when, or I would see a funny one off on Twitter for her or something. Um, but yeah. I I can't I'm I'm so fucking excited she's great she's great Rutherford Falls
1: so she co she was one of the writers on Rutherford Falls and she's one of the leads it's basically her and Ed Helms uh, from The Hangover from Andy on The Office and the two of them from what I can grok thus far I only just downloaded Peacock it's about this town uh uh probably in the Midwest that has a strong indigenous population and indigenous heritage um, that the white fucking settlers are now sort of trying to honor. And so it's this sort of cultural integration versus assimilation show. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm so excited for her, a fat indigenous woman, being fucking funny, starring in a show and like bringing a ton of authentic culture to it like Jamma's also a beater she's an amazing beater, and yes so many of the person who works with
0: beads not someone who beats something
1: yes right right (laughs) um she's incredible and now she's um she's being nominated for an emmy for her work on this show (laughs) and i'm just so fucking excited for her oh she's awesome yay Please check out Rutherford Falls on Peacock, which is Rutherford. where you can watch that and a bunch of other uh, very original NBC content. Hiya, hiya! Um, by the way, uh, uh new news. Your recommendation was Swimply. Mine. Okay, I'm growing so much right now and it's so uncomfortable and that's all I'm really going to say about it. Um, <laughs> but I am reading Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Oh, I'm not familiar with this. So Glennon Doyle, I, I actually know her in contrast with Jennifer Weiner. So Jennifer Weiner um, had wrote one of, one of her books, Mrs. Everything, I think. One of her books was up for um, an Oprah book club pick and I think it would have been her first time and she was really excited and and Oprah ended up going with Glennon Doyle who had just released a book called Love Warrior and Love Warrior uh so Glennon I didn't know she was as good a writer as she is she's uh, phenomenal I really enjoy her Glennon was a mommy blogger a Christian mommy blogger for excuse me for a very long time and living a very like Christian mommy life. But the the real heart under it was like, hey, my Christian mommy life saved me from alcoholism and drug abuse and a a ravaging eating disorder. So a lot of her like spirituality came from family life saving her from herself. Right. And then Love Warrior is a book about how she found out her husband from the day they were together was having one night stands all the fucking time. Oh no. Right. Aww. And she writes in it that it was I didn't feel like my heart had been broken. I felt like I felt enraged like a writer whose plot had been broken. Oh, and she's shit. like this is not how it's supposed to fucking go. And so she used a lot of internal power to make Make those fucking lemons into lemonade and like go to therapy and re and resurrect her family and resurrect her marriage. And so she did so, writing Love Warrior. She writes Love Warrior, it gets published, and it's about to release when she falls in love with a woman. Oh, hey, look yeah. at that! Yeah, and so. <laughs> That happened literally at the same time, like she was on the book tour when she fell in love with this woman and she was like, oh, shit. And she was like, hey, agents, I'm changing my game. And they're like, no, 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 no. This whole book is like about you and your happy little family. And she's like, no, no, my life is about me. And so then she started Untamed, which she prefaces with a story. I feel like we can all benefit from this. So I'm going to read it the 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 preface to the book yeah is i'm here for it called cheetah two summers ago my wife and i took our daughters to the zoo as we walked to the grounds we saw a sign advertising the park's big event the cheetah run we headed toward the families scouting out their viewing spots and found an empty stretch along the route our youngest amma hopped up on my wife's shoulders for a better view A peppy blonde zookeeper in a khaki vest appeared. She held a megaphone and the leash of a yellow Labrador retriever. I was confused. I don't know much about animals, but if she tried to convince my kids that this dog was a cheetah, I was getting a cheetah-run refund. (laughs) She began, welcome everybody, you are about to meet our resident cheetah, Tabitha. Do you think this is Tabitha? Nah! Oh, the kids yelled. This sweet Labrador is Minnie, Tabitha's best friend. We introduced them when Tabitha was a baby cheetah, and we raised Minnie alongside Tabitha to help tame her. Whatever Minnie does, Tabitha wants to do.
0: Oh my God.
1: I know. You can't wiggle if I'm recording. You can't do it. Thank you. The zookeeper motioned toward a parked Jeep behind her. A pink stuffed bunny was tied to the tailgate with a fraying rope. She asked, who has a Labrador at home? Little hands shot into the air. And whose lab loves to play chase? Mine! The kids shouted. Well, Minnie loves to chase this bunny. So first, Minnie will do the cheetah run while Tabitha watches to remember how it's done. Then we'll count down. I'll open Tabitha's cage and she'll take off. At the end of the route, just 100 meters that way, there will be a delicious steak waiting for Tabitha. The zookeeper uncovered Tabitha's cage and walked Minnie, eager and panting, to the starting line. She signaled to the jeep, and it took off. She released Minnie's leash, and we all watched a yellow lab joyfully chase a dirty pink bunny. The kids applauded earnestly. The adults wiped sweat from their foreheads. Finally, it was time for Tabitha's big moment. We counted down in unison. Five! Five! four three two one the zookeeper slid open the cage door and the bunny took off once again tabitha bolted out laser focused on the bunny a spotted blur she crossed the finish line within seconds the zookeeper whistled and threw her a steak. tabitha pinned it to the ground with her oven mitt paws hunkered <laughs> down in the dirt and chewed while the crowd clapped i didn't clap i felt queasy The taming of Tabitha felt familiar. I watched Tabitha gnawing that steak in the zoo dirt and thought day after day, this wild animal chases dirty pink bunnies down the well worn, narrow path they cleared for her, never looking left or right, never catching that damn bunny, settling instead for a store bought steak and the distracted approval of sweaty strangers obeying the zookeeper's every command, just like Minnie, the lab she's been trained to believe she is. Unaware that if she remembered her wildness, just for a moment, she could tear those zookeepers to shreds. When Tabitha finished her steak, the zookeeper opened a gate that led to a small fenced field. Tabitha walked through, and the gate closed behind her. The zookeeper picked up her megaphone again and asked for questions. A young girl, maybe nine years old, raised her hand and asked, "'Isn't Tabitha sad? Doesn't she miss the wild?' "'I'm sorry I can't hear you,' the zookeeper said. "'Can you ask that again?' The child's mother said louder, "'She wants to know if Tabitha misses the wild.' The zookeeper smiled and said, "'No, Tabitha was born here. She doesn't know any different. She's never even seen the wild.' This is a good life for Tabitha. She's much safer here than she would be out in the wild. While the zookeeper began sharing facts about cheetahs born into captivity, my older daughter Tish nudged me and pointed to Tabitha. There, in that field, away from Minnie and the zookeepers, Tabitha's posture had changed. Her head was high, and she was stalking the periphery, tracing the boundaries the fence created. Back and forth. "'back and forth, stopping only to stare "'somewhere beyond the fence. "'It was like she was remembering something. "'She looked regal and a little scary. "'Tish whispered to me, "'Mommy, she turned wild again.' "'I nodded at Tish and kept my eyes on Tabitha "'as she stalked. "'I wished I could ask her, "'What's happening inside you right now?' "'I knew what she'd tell me. "'She'd say, "'Something's off about my life.' I feel restless and frustrated. I have this hunch that everything was supposed to be more beautiful than this. I imagine fenceless, wide-open savannas. I want to run and hunt and kill. I want to sleep under an ink-black, silent sky filled with stars. It's all so real I can taste it. Then she'd look back at the cage, the only home she's ever known. She'd look at the smiling zookeepers— the bored spectators, and her panting, bouncing, begging best friend, the lab. She'd sigh and say, I should be grateful. I have a good enough life here. It's crazy to long for what doesn't even exist. I'd say, Tabitha, you are not crazy. You are a goddamn cheetah. <laughs>
0: Holy shit, that's so great.
1: Holy fucking shit! Oh. It's. Man. Real good. It's. This is a great book. A great, great, great book. And it's literally just like tiny little mini memoirs all linked to like moments where she was caged, moments where she was complicit in her own caging um, mm-hmm. through conditioning, moments where she felt the bite of freedom, and big moments of freedom-making choices. And it's all very essential. <sighs> wow.
0: Yeah. I feel like I was holding my breath.
1: I think you were. Oh. <laughs> Uh, So I strongly, strongly recommend Untamed by Glennon Doyle. It's um, incredible. And I think, I mean, I think we're just all at a point right now, no matter how it applies in your life. This year has taught us that life is short. This year has pointed us maybe toward what we want or at the very least what we don't want. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's really scary. Mm-hmm. That's really scary because the things that we decide we don't want are the things that promise us safety and security and um, and predictability. And it's hard to say no to that. Um, and I just, I think we are braver than we know. And um, we can do hard things. Yes, we can. So um,
0: I... I've talked before about my struggle with bathing suits Um, and I found, I found something that works fine, but it's still not like what I want or how I want it. Um, And I don't, when I'm actively swimming, especially at the ocean, I don't, I don't worry about it, but I think about people's cute beach things on Instagram and stuff. And, um, you know, I don't know. I wish I had a bathing suit that made me feel awesome. Um, however, this last time when I was at the beach with my family, looking around at, like, all of the different kinds of people who are at the beach and realizing that for the most part, I'm not looking at anyone else at the beach. Literally at all. I'm sure that there are some people who go specifically to check out other hot young people. But, um, like, I asked my my niece and nephews, all of whom are, like, um, 19 to 26. I was like, have you ever gone to the beach with friends and, like, made even made friends at the beach do you ever talk to anyone like maybe if there's a bar near the beach but like sitting on the beach i think the most interaction we have with people is when they accidentally throw a frisbee and it like lands on our towel i don't under i don't look at i don't care about anything anybody else is doing and i wish that i had not wasted so much time oh worried about how people thought i looked in a maiden suit because really no one gives a fuck and the reason why i brought this up is there's a, a, a transmasculine, non-binary photographer who I follow on Instagram. So this photographer's name is Ra, R-A-H Ford, F-O-A-R-D. You can find them at Ra's All That on Instagram. And they were talking about how yesterday was the first time since their top surgery that they had gone out in public um, and just had a nice swim and that they had that they had been shirtless in front of people Last summer, but didn't feel good about it at all. And this time, felt great about it.
1: Oh, yay.
0: And there's so many things that we all, like, squish down and hide. And so many things that we worry about, like, people seeing scars and people, like, questioning. And, and sometimes people are assholes. It's not going to never happen.
1: Mm. But,
0: like, also, most people don't go to the beach or the pool by themselves. So if you're with someone... <laughs> And somebody's an asshole. At least you have like some backup. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's 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 worth the risk, man. It's so (laughs) to be able to be out in the sun um, with your shirt off, if that's what you want. And like, P.S. the the um, there's a nude beach in New Jersey. There's topless beaches in New York. Like, no matter who you are, if you want your shirt off, you can just go take it off somewhere. and no, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Love them. Nobody cares. And except for you. And you're the one that you are, that you owe it to, to make happy. So.
1: Yes. That is my story. I love it. So it's been a while since we've read to you guys, especially something other than, um, uh, uh, terrifying interactions with horrible people, um, (laughs) (laughs) and we want to bring you back to Weedsy Bat. You may remember last summer we did an episode where we read, uh, the book Weedsy Bat by Francesca Leah Block. It's one full episode. It's lovely. Uh, dig into us versus the audiobook if you prefer your reader's, um, if you prefer to know your readers very intimately and mortifyingly Um, and (laughs) then Necklace of Kisses uh Francesca Lea Block wrote a number of books after Weetzie Bat that were in that universe but this is really the first one about Weetzie and similar to Untamed about a woman who is trying to find her magic again Yay. yay this is also the first book that bonded Lillian and I yes yes um,
0: it, oh, oh interesting the little blurb on the back of my hard copy is um, hardcover copy although it is a hard copy um, it says necklace of kisses is the most lustrous gem in the necklace of weetsy bat stories I read it on the plane and had to hide my tears from the woman seated next to me. John Cameron Mitchell. Relatable. John Cameron Mitchell. It's so nice to hear those mushy things because he was such a dick on Trill. (laughs) I'm like, no, actually, you're lovely. And I've been in love with you since you were in uh, Secret Garden. Oh. I have. I've always loved him.
1: Oh, that's so cute. I love that.
0: (sighs) So here we go. This is A Necklace of Kisses by Francesca Lea
1: Block. Kisses! Where were the kisses, Weetzie Bat wondered. Even after almost 20 years, Weetzie and her secret agent lover man still threw each other against walls, climbed up each other's bodies like ladders, and attacked each other's mouths as if they were performing resuscitation. The kisses had been earthquakes, shattering every glass object in a room. They had been thunderstorms, wiping out electricity so that candles had to be lit. Then, those kisses extinguished the candle flames. They had been rainstorms on the driest, thirstiest desert days, causing camellias, hydrangeas, agapanthus, and azaleas to bloom in the garden. Those kisses, Weetzie remembered, they had been explosions. Now there were no kisses at all. Weetzie dressed in a pair of cropped, zippered, pale orange pants, a silver studded black belt, a pair of high-heeled ankle strap sandals, a black silk and lace camisole, a white satin trench, a pink Hello Kitty watch, and a pair of oversized, rimless pink glasses, with her name written in rhinestones on the lens. Then carefully, thoughtfully, one by one, Weetzie took out of her closet— A lime green, pink, and orange kimono print string bikini she had made herself. Two fresh, unopened packs of men's extra-small white tank tops from the surplus store. New fallen snowy white Levi's 501 jeans. Men's black silk gabardine trousers from the Salvation Army, tailored to fit. A pair of orange suede old-school trainers with white stripes, orange leather, silver-studded slides. Some bikini underwear and bras in black, white, pink, lime green and orange. A pink and green poochie tunic from her best friend, Dirk's Grandma <laughs> Fifi. Grandma Fifi. Grandma Fifi. put everything into a small white suitcase covered with pink roses and fastened with gold hardware. It was very important that everything was just right. Fabulous, actually. She'd read an article in a fashion magazine, aceness at any age, and realized that she had already zipped through her 20s and 30s, only 10 short years each, wearing Salvation Army finery mixed with her own wacky creations. She liked the jacket made of stuffed animal pelts Mm -hmm. and the necklace of plastic baby dolls. But at 40, she wasn't sure that either looked particularly ace, and there was less and less time to be fabulous now why was fabulousness important the world was a scary sad place and adornment was one of the only ways she knew to make herself and the people around her forget their troubles that was why she had opened her store almost five years ago everyone who entered the little square white house with miniature corinthian columns cherub statues and french windows Seemed to leave carrying armloads of newly handmade and spruced up recycled vintage clothing, humming 60s girl group songs, 70s glam and punk, 80s new wave one hit wonders, or 90s grunge, doing silly dances and not caring what anyone thought. Wheatsey loved the old dresses she found and sold because they had their own secret histories. She always wondered where, when, and how they had been worn what they had seen. Old dresses were like old ladies, except that the poochy tunic, Emilia, still shone like a young girl. In her white purse, Weetzie put her tiny pink Hello Kitty wallet, her huge black sunglasses case, a toothbrush, toothpaste and floss, deodorant, a bottle of jasmine and gardenia perfume, a tube of pink lipstick, a heart-shaped powder compact, travel-sized bottles of sunscreen, moisturizer, hair gel, and shaving cream, a razor, a comb, and her cell phone. She smacked on some pink lip gloss and dumped that in, too. Then she went to look at Max, who was asleep with a newspaper covering his face. Who was he, she wondered. This man with his head in a newspaper all the time. This man who had been her secret agent lover for so long... "'and was now just Max. "'They had hardly said a word to each other in days. "'There was nothing left to say. "'There were no kisses, "'or even the ghosts of kisses floating through the air, "'waiting to be caught. "'Weetzie caught a glimpse of herself in the heart-shaped mirror "'as she walked out of the door of the cottage "'where she and Max had been together for over two decades. "'Her hair was short and bleached platinum blonde, "'as it had been since she was a teenager.' Her nose, chin, and ears were pointy, as a petulant fairy's, but her her mouth was wide, soft, and affectionate. Her eyes were hidden under pink sunglasses, so she could not see the little lines that revealed her age or the tears that were not there. Chapter 2 Gray
0: When Max woke up, he noticed that the room looked different. The walls, which Weetzie had painted to look like they were sleeping inside a rose, were gray, the color of newsprint. He just kept staring at the walls, wondering how this could be if he was still dreaming. Then he felt an aching emptiness deep in his intestines, and he knew she was gone. He went and checked the closet for her small suitcase and her pink and green silk dress, but he already knew they weren't there. He remembered one of Weetzie's favorite movie scenes— Grace Kelly in rear window, how she comes to see Jimmy Stewart with only the tiniest case and everything she needs, nightgown, robe, and slippers, tucked neatly inside. Weetzie had learned how to pack like that over the years. He wondered if he had told her how much he appreciated it. When they met, she jumbled everything into large vinyl shopping bags. I'm such a bag lady, she laughed. He had actually loved that about her, too, at the time. Max sat down on the floor and picked up the phone. He dialed Dirk and Duck. "She's gone," he said when Dirk answered. Dirk was quiet for a moment. "What did you expect, man?" he finally said, then as if realizing how harsh he sounded, added, "Sorry." "Max said, "Do you know where she went?" "She didn't tell me." "The the room is gray." "It's what?" "Gray." "The walls" It's like a newspaper in here. You must like that. Not necessary. If we hear anything, we'll let you know, okay? Max started to cough. It sounded like his old smoker's hack, but he quit years ago. He could almost taste the nicotine now. Maybe he could go down to the liquor store. Can we make you dinner? Dirk said. No thanks, man. You're okay? Yeah. Well... "'Call if you need anything,' Dirk said to the dial tone. "'Instead of buying cigarettes, "'Max went out and sat on the floor in Wheaty's closet. "'When they moved back to the cottage, "'they had converted one of the bedrooms into a closet for her "'because she said that ever since she was a kid, "'she didn't care how small her house was "'as long as she could have a walk-in. "'He realized that he hadn't noticed what she wore in a long time. "'It used to be such a source of delight to him "'every morning to see how she put her outfits together.' Now he ran his hands along the carefully organized racks. They were sorted by color and style, as well as, chrono- pro- mm, as, well as chronologically. It was like looking at a little movie of their lives. There was a red satin mini-dress she wore on their first date with those rhinestone chandelier earrings that brushed her shoulders. The sundress made out of kid sheets, printed with piglets. The pink velour mini-dress the Levi's with intricate layers of colorful suede fringe sewn down the legs, the black steel-toed engineer boots she wore with 50s taffeta prom dresses when she slammed in the pit at the punk gigs. Then he saw the pink and black Chanel suit she had inherited from Dirk's Grandma Fifi. He held it in his hands and felt the soft, nubby fabric. It smelled like gardenias and jasmine. She used to like to wear the jacket with jeans or over a pink silk slip. The skirt with a black camisole, bare legs, and stilettos. He was so relieved that Coco, as she called it, was here. It
1: meant that somehow, maybe, she would be back. I have to say, when this book was written in 2005, I just felt such envy at the clothing. Such infinite Envy Yep and longing and I was like, but I'm wheaty and everything that I want to wear is a cold shoulder or dolman sleeve. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I always felt that way. I had I had thin <sighs> friends who who wore like a denim jacket over a slip yeah. or would you know, even <laughs> like the whole trend of making a handkerchief into a shirt kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I just have to say. I always read about
0: Wheatsies things and (laughs) I was just like, I I don't, how
1: can that ever be me? Right. Right. But I do have to say I'm at my most actualized in like the kind of shit that I would wear in my wildest dreams and it feels better to be reading it right now. Yeah, it really does. Also, um, I think I forgot that
0: (laughs) that she was in her 40s. So, this is a journey for me as well
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay chapter three the lost kiss weedsy had gone to her high school prom at the pink hotel she had asked dirk mcdonald who was the coolest of all the boys and still one of her best friends in the whole world but at the time he told her there was no way he would ever do anything related to high school unless it was absolutely mandatory he said she could join him for a pink's hot dog and a gig at the whiskey. But she was determined to experience one normal high school thing before she left forever. So when Zane Starling asked her to the prom, she said yes. Zane Starling and Weetsey met in their social studies class, where they worked together on a project about teenage suicide. He was six foot two, with spiky blonde hair, green eyes, and golden skin. In the afternoons, Wheatsey roller-skated through Hollywood to his small stucco house surrounded by generations of transplanted Christmas trees. They sat in his dark, pine-scented room, talking about what would make someone want to kill himself. These conversations proved how sensitive Zane Starling was, as well as perfect-looking. He told Weetzie that he had had a huge crush on her friend, Tracy Calla, but that she was an ice princess, and that he was over her, which showed that he was a person of substance. (laughs) He played David Bowie albums, which demonstrated that, unlike 95% of the boys at Wheatzie's high school who only listened to heavy metal, he was utterly cool. Then he asked Wheatzie if he could paint her, which proved that he was also artistic and attentive. On prom night, Zane Starling, wearing a rented black tuxedo and an aqua blue shirt, borrowed his father's station wagon and picked Weetzie up. He told her she looked beautiful in the aqua blue satin taffeta dress that she had found at a vintage shop and shortened to the top of her thighs by removing two tiers of ruffles, the devilishly pointed paler aqua blue satin pumps, tiny white fishnet gloves, and an aqua blue rhinestone studded cat collar. dreams. (laughs) Zane Starling pinned a white tea rose and lily of the valley corsage onto Wheatzie's dress and handed her a present wrapped awkwardly in tissue. It was the painting he had made, and it looked just like her. When they arrived at the hotel, Zane left the car with the valet took Weetzie's arm and walked her up the staircase into the ballroom, where they danced all night until Zane Starling's aqua blue shirt was soaked sheer with sweat. Then they slipped out into the gardens of the hotel under a rose arbor beside a small pond full of water lilies. Weetzie imagined that Zane Starling's kiss could have healed anyone who might have thought they wanted to die— that she would see angels with shocks of iridescent hair and luminous thunderbolts on their faces. But instead of waiting to see if this was true, she pulled away from Zane Starling and told him she wanted to go home. When he dropped her off at her door, she couldn't stop crying, though she could not have said why. Later, she realized it was because Zane Starling could have been the one— And she was too afraid and too young for him to be the one, and she knew it would never happen that way again. Also, Weetzie was thinking of Tracy Kala, who was dark-skinned, had big breasts and long, shiny hair, and had sat at the table next to Weetzie and Zane Starling with her boyfriend, a model who looked at least five years older than anyone else at the prom. Weetzie kept glancing over at their table and wondering how Zane Starling could like her— if he really wanted Tracy Calla, When she saw the painting he made of her, she realized even more clearly that she looked nothing like his dark, voluptuous dream girl. So Weetsy never returned Zane Starling's call. Later, she found out that Dirk was gay. She met Max, who was small and dark and brooding, and whom she loved in all the chambers of her heart, but never kissed anymore. Many nights, lying beside him, their bodies not touching, Weetze dreamed of a pink palace full of dancing ghosts. And so she would go to the hotel now, seeking the kiss she had lost.
0: (sighs) That whole thing, uh, he could have been the one, but she was too afraid and too young for him to be the one. Like, Mm. we don't, it's so hard to admit that when you're young. That like... (laughs) That, like, someone that you're, that turns you inside out is not the same person. Well, they won't be the same person in five years, so how can they necessarily yeah. know who, who, you can't know who's going to be good for Anyway, whatever, you get the point. <laughs> that, that beautiful ennui. Mm. Uh, I think this is chapter four. Um, the Pink Hotel. The rumor behind the Pink Hotel was this. It was built in the 20s by an eccentric movie mogul as a palace for his fiancée, Daisy. Just before they were about to move in, Daisy suddenly died. The producer disappeared into the suites on the top floor, and the rest of the palace became living quarters for the most beautiful and desirable Hollywood prostitutes. It was taken over in the 50s by the son of the madam who reinvented it as a hotel. Rumor had it that he performed pagan rituals on the grounds, and hid statues of goddesses and horned fertility deities in the gardens. It was also said that Daisy still haunted the rooms. You drove up a circular road lined with palm trees and bougainvillea plants, to the pink hotel's green glass doors. You entered a lobby with pale green carpeting, pink velvet chairs, and a cream damask sofa. "'You took a large flight of stairs up into a grand ballroom with pink and green parquet floor. "'On the floors above were the rooms and suites whose walls could not talk "'but might possibly wake you in the middle of the night with a song. "'To the left of the lobby was a gleaming white restaurant "'that opened into a terrace overlooking the main lawn. "'Beyond the restaurant was the bar, "'a separate building with a glass dome that lit up with constellations.' On the right side of the lobby was a beauty salon with blue mirrored walls painted with pink cherry blossoms and gold branches. Along the back wall of the hotel was a row of shops that had originally been an atrium. A reflecting pool ran the length of the shops. Jacarandas and willow trees lined its banks, wild parrots flashing their feathers among the leaves, swans swans glided and flamingos posed beside the lily pads. Any hotel exit turn you, took you down winding paths among beds of roses, gardenias, and topiary animals, through tiny groves of citrus trees, under grape arbors, and past mossy grottos with splashing fountains. The main path led you to the garden rooms, tiny individual cottages that had been first built to house the help. Beyond these was the Olympic-sized pool. At the other edge of the lawn was a Japanese restaurant and a traditional gardens that had been built by the next owner, a businessman from Tokyo whom no one had ever seen, but who was said to visit once a year dressed up as an actress, a trophy wife, or a geisha. The current owner was even more mysterious. As Weetzie left her 1965 mint-green Thunderbird with a valet who looked like Rudolph Valentino and walked through the front doors, she thought, "'Oh, Pink Hotel.'" If I could be a place, you are the
1: place I would be. Chapter 5. The Blue Lady Weetzie went up to the check-in desk, carrying her suitcase and her white purse. She took off her pink rhinestone sunglasses and put them on the pale green marble counter. A very tall, slender woman with her hair worn in an elegant chignon on top of her head stepped out from behind a small potted orange tree. "'Oh,' Weetzie said. "'May I help you?' the woman asked in a soft, resonant voice. "'I'm sorry, you're so... blue?' the woman said. "'Weetzie said, beautiful!' "'And blue?' the woman said. "'She was an astonishing shade of cobalt. "'Isn't it funny how no one says what they see? "'I don't mind. I know that I'm blue. "'Are you here to check in?' "'Yes,' said Weetzie. "'Sorry.' "'No problem.' Weetzie thought of how direct the woman had been and decided to ask the question that was on her mind. "'Why, I, I mean, how did you turn blue?' the woman said. Weetzie nodded. "'I left my boyfriend to come here,' the blue woman said, gesturing around the lobby of the hotel with its domed, pale blue ceiling painted with cherubs and rose garlands." And then I started missing him. When I called him to see if I could come home, he said he had met someone else. Wheatsey suddenly imagined Max lying in bed under his newspaper. In the vision, there was another pair of legs beside his, a woman's. Her head was covered with a newspaper, too, but she had lovely feet with purple toenail polish. Wheatsey looked blankly at the blue lady. "'wondering if she had somehow guessed why Weetzie was here. "'Then she realized that the story was a response "'to the question about the woman's coloring. "'And you turned blue,' the woman said, checking her computer. "'Yes. Now, would you like a garden room or something in the main building?' "'A garden room,' Weetzie murmured, "'looking at the plain gold band Max had given her.' wondering how she could ever possibly carry off cobalt coloring. Chapter 6. Room Service Wheatzie's room had
0: French doors that opened onto a tiny patio with a fountain and potted jasmine and gardenia plants. The ceiling was painted pale sky blue, the carpet was pale grass green, and the walls were papered with an old-fashioned pattern of pink cabbage roses, light purple irises, green leaves, and pale yellow stripes. There was a seashell-shaped loveseat upholstered in rose velvet, and a desk and chair of pale yellow wood, hand-painted with leaves, and the small roses you could make by dabbing a brush in two colors of paint about eight times each. There was a big, comfortable bed with a pink comforter. The satin sheets felt like water and smelled like lavender. There was also a small refrigerator and a mini bar. Wheatzie opened the refrigerator and took out a bottle of tonic water and a bottle of grapefruit juice, which she mixed in a glass on the ice she had retrieved in a silver bucket from the humming machine down the hallway. As she put a Milky Way bar into the freezer for later, she vowed that she would go easy on the refreshments in the room. They cost a fortune, and the money she had saved from the store wouldn't last forever. Not that she would be here forever, she told herself, and then wondered when she was planning on leaving— "'This question had not even occurred to her when she came here. "'Weetzie took off her shoes, pulled the bedspread off the bed— "'she always remembered how she changed her baby's diapers on those things "'when they were babies—and lay down with her drink. "'From the room, you could hear the splashing sounds of the pool "'and smell the chlorine mixed with the flowers. "'You could hear birds in the trees and the cleaning lady whistling "'as she wheeled her cart down the walkway. "'The cocktail Weetzie was drinking bit her mouth pleasantly.' Was it the quinine from the tonic water? What was quinine, anyway? Some kind of bitter salt? Weetzie finished the drink and took off her clothes. Then she went into the bathroom and filled the tub, dumping the entire contents of the hotel's green bath gel bottle under the stream. She opened the window so she could smell the garden and eased herself into the bathtub. Then she hummed Smells Like Teen Spirit while she shaved her legs and underarms and used a pumice stone on the calluses on her feet. She realized that she didn't have any significant songs after Kurt Cobain shot himself. It made her feel old, but there was nothing she could do about it. Listening to new music hurt too much. When she got out of the tub, she wrapped herself in one of the thick white towels that smelled of fresh-baked cake and sat on the bed. She realized, smelling the towel, that she was starving, so she did her second favorite hotel thing to do. After taking a bath, she called room service. "'Room service, may I help you?' a man's voice said. "'I was wondering if you might have any items from the breakfast menu at this time of day,' Weetze asked. Uh, "'I'm sorry, miss, we only have the afternoon snack menu available now. Until 4.30, when we have the pre-supper menu available, then we have the early supper menu. At 6.30 we have the dinner proper menu, until 9.30, then we have the late dinner menu.' From 11 to 12.30, we have the late, late dinner menu. Then we have a snack menu until 2. From 2 to 6, we have the wee hour snack. We have a breakfast menu from 6 until 11. But what if I wanted to get eggs and oatmeal and fruit and a bran muffin, Weetzie said. She would have been very impatient with his speech, but she liked his voice and the way he called her Miss. Well, we only have eggs on the breakfast menu, and on Sundays we have them on the brunch menu. We have fruit on the snack menu. We have muffins and oatmeal on the breakfast menu, but not on the brunch menu. Do you think you might have one piece of fruit lying around? Weetzie asked. Let me look and call you back, the voice said. Wheatsy thanked him and hung up. There was something so magical about room service. You just pressed a button and talked to a nice person and then this food appeared at your door on a silver tray with white linen and ice water tinkling in a glass. She got up and put on the TV. At home, she would never do such a thing, not in the middle of a balmy sunny afternoon. Max had the TV news on all the time lately, but Weetzie hated it. Now she put on IFC and saw they were showing her favorite cross rock musical, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. She realized happily that she loved all the songs from that show, and they were recent. I'm not so old after all, she thought. She sang, I put on my makeup, along with Hedwig, and danced around the room. She got out her lipstick, dabbed some on her lips, and patted her nose with powder. The phone rang. For a second, her heart leaped as if in expectation. (laughs) What could she be expecting? It was only room service. I found some oats, grapes, and a kiwi, he said. Oh, I like grapes and kiwi. I had a dog once who loved kiwis. Really, what kind? Are are there different kinds of kiwis? Oh, oh, I meant the dog. He was a dachshund, she said, and immediately felt a lump in her throat, thinking of her beloved boy. He had died in her arms at 15, fat and happy, but she still regretted that she hadn't wished to give him a human lifespan when she had the chance. Those dogs are so cool. I had them growing up. Really? What was his name? Slinkster Dog. Great name. Ours were Shirley, Keith, Lori, and Danny. What about Mr. Kincaid? (laughs) They laughed. You don't sound old enough for the Partridge family, she said. Reruns. Well, I better get your kiwi. Thank you, Weetzie said. But that isn't much protein. I won't even ask if you have any tofu. No, sorry. We have plain yogurt, though. Oh, what the hell, Weetzie said. I'm kind of lactose intolerant, but you only live once. They laughed again. Coming right up, said room service. A few minutes later, there was a knock on the door. Weetzie was so involved with Hedwig that she had forgotten to get dressed. She put on the terrycloth robe that also smelled like a cake and answered the door. Mr. Room Service looked like a fawn who had escaped the Arcadian woods for the big city. He was wearing a white shirt, black pants, heavy black shoes, a white apron, and carrying a silver tray with a bunch of red and green grapes, arranged elegantly beside a carefully skinned and sliced kiwi. There was a bowl of oatmeal and three small white china carafes, one with yogurt, one with raisins, and one with brown sugar. There There was ice water in a glass and white tea roses in a vase. The man grinned. Where would you like this? He asked. Oh, the bed is fine, Weetzie mumbled. Is it? He winked at her as he put the tray down. Enjoy, he said. He had that kind of lascivious mouth that looked as if he would be very adept at kissing. His eyes, though, were kind and not at all devouring. Weetzie signed the bill, adding a generous tip. What brings you here, Weetzie? He asked in a soft voice, as if he was afraid someone might hear him fraternizing with a guest, but his grin said that he didn't care that much. Mm, midlife crisis what makes you think you'll only live until you're 50 what you said midlife you look about 25 (laughs) very charming i bet you're an actor in your spare time he shook his head and looked at her innocently are you sure well not a working one who is he squinted at her and then up at the independent film channel playing behind her You look familiar. Were you ever... Just some crazy indie stuff with my family. Where are they now? He looked around the room, as if for signs of them. All he saw, Weetzie realized, was her suitcase, her white purse, her sunglasses, and her stilettos. My babies are off at school, she said. I thought I'd go on an adventure. School? You mean boarding School berkeley and santa barbara she said you see my god well you look amazing wait you must have had them when you were one yourself this reminded her of something max had said a long time ago when she told him she wanted to have a baby and she glanced down at her hands before getting in the tub she had removed the ring she wore and put it in a water glass by the bed she had never taken it off before Her stomach made a loud growling sound, and she put her hand there, embarrassed. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm hungrier than I thought. You better eat, then. Call me if you need pre-supper or early supper or dinner. Then I'm off. But tomorrow night, you can call me for the wee hour snack, Weetzie. Thank you, she said. Oh, I didn't get your name. Pan. Pan. As he trotted off down the garden walk, she imagined that there might be tiny horns buried in his thick curls, cloven hooves in his shoes, and perhaps a frisky tail in his trousers. In fact, she truly believed she saw it peeking up there above his belt trying to escape. Room service indeed, she thought. Weetzie, you had really better behave yourself.
1: The Pool Weetzie finished her post-lunch late-breakfast snack, sitting cross-legged on the bed, watching Hedwig. Afterwards, she put on her sunscreen, her bikini, and her orange sandals and trotted to the pool. As she slid into the jacuzzi bubbles, she realized that if she could spend all her life in warm water, she might never get upset. Whenever she needed to have a serious talk with Max, she insisted on taking a bubble bath with him. He had stopped doing this, so they just didn't talk anymore. Try not to think about him she told herself. The Olympic-sized pool was paved with pink, green, and white tiles, and surrounded by tiled fountains, bougainvillea plants, urns of gardenias, and tables with green umbrellas. No one else was around except for one couple reclining on chaise lounges, drinking Perrier, and soaking up the sunshine. The man looked about sixty, bald, tan with white chest hair and diamond rings on his fingers. The woman was a living Barbie doll, even down to her surreal measurements. After a while, she stood up, and Weetzie watched her wobble awkwardly on her long legs to the edge of the pool. When she dove into the water, she was strikingly graceful, swimming like a giant buxom fish through the water. <laughs> when I read this, I think of Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> She swirled and somersaulted in an elaborate water ballet, barely coming up for air. When she finally got out of the water, she was smiling radiantly. She wobbled over to Weetzie and slipped into the jacuzzi beside her. Weetzie felt a little uncomfortable at such close proximity to the woman's huge Barbie doll breasts. She tried not to stare at them. Hi, the woman said sweetly. Hi, I'm Shelley. I'm Wheatsy. Where are you from? I live in town. How about you? We live here. The woman said in the hotel. That must be pretty glamorous. The woman shrugged. I come from the ocean. I miss it a lot. Santa Monica or Malibu. Oh, just all over, just the ocean. "'Sal is a producer, so he likes to be near the studios. "'He likes to be near the action. "'What does your husband do?' "'Weetsie looked at her blankly. "'Or is it your boyfriend? "'Is he in the industry?' "'Weetsie remembered that she had put Max's ring back on her finger, "'but she still didn't quite get the question. "'He's a director. "'He must be pretty successful.' "'He does all right,' Weetsie said.' "'But this is on my dime. I'm an independent woman.' "'Oh, honey,' Shelley said sympathetically. "'We've got to get him in line. A man has to take care of his possessions.' She reached under the water, took Weetzie's French pedicured foot in her hands, and began massaging it. Before Weetzie could say anything, Sal, who had been making his way over, lumbered down the steps and dunked himself into the water, I hope I'm not interrupting anything, he said. Honey, this is Weetzie. Isn't that a cute name? Weetzie, realizing her foot was still being caressed, pulled it quickly away. I'm Sal, the man said. He winked at her. Weetzie wondered if she had imagined it, what with the bright sun on the pool and his diamonds and all. It all seemed like too much of a cliché. What do you do, Weetzie? I own a shop. She's an independent woman, Shelley said, as if she were talking about a (laughs) life-threatening disease. Sal clucked. Where's your guy? At home, Weetzie said. I'm taking a little vacation. Well, at least join us for a drink, said Sal. Shelley nodded, shaking out her long blonde hair. For the first time, Weetzie realized that it had green tints, maybe from a bad dye job or too much chlorine. That would be nice, Weetzie said. After all, she had come here for an adventure. Weetzie went back to her room, showered and slipped into Amelia. Then she put on her sandals and walked along the garden path to Sal and Shelley's suite in the main building of the Pink Hotel. The couches were shaped like giant gold and rose velvet seashells. They were dimly lit there were dimly lit fish tanks filled with exotic tropical fish swimming along miniature sunken ships and gold treasure chests overflowing with strands of pearls and jewels on every surface were small china mermaid figurines Shelley showed them off one by one telling Weezie their names in a soft serious voice Kelpie Lisette Pamela the little mermaid statues looked sad, so fragile and breakable with their painted on smiles. Sometimes I write little notes and put them inside, Shelley said. I pretend I am sending them to my mother. Sal handed Weetzie a large sapporo. She didn't usually drink any more, but the way the moisture beaded on the cold, brown glass bottle made her mouth water, and she took it. Sushi! Shelley asked, holding out a tray. Sashimi? She daintily picked up a huge slab of raw tuna and slid the whole thing down her throat in one shocking swallow. It's really fresh, Sal said. Got it myself. He patted Shelley's rear end. Weetzie shook her head. No thanks. But by the end of the evening, and after three beers, she had eaten some yellowtail, slurped a salty, jiggling orange sea urchin, and even rigorously chewed a piece of white and purple octopus, just like when she was young and omnivorous. At one point, while Sal was out of the room, Shelley leaned over and asked, "'Have you ever had any plastic surgery?' "'Excuse me?' Weetzie said. It's just that I assume everybody does, you know, all the girls anyway. I've wondered about Botox, Weetzie admitted, but I think it's pretty gross. I can't bring myself to really inject botulism or crow toxins or whatever it is into my face. Shelley looked at her blankly. Then she said, Sal made me get a lot. He made you? "'Well, when we met, I couldn't really get around. "'I mean, not on land. "'So we did some advanced techniques of plastic surgery "'and then some laser surgery, and, well, this is what happened.' "'She patted her thighs, but Weetzie was looking at her breasts. "'Oh, those are real,' Shelley said. "'Do you think Pamela Anderson's are real?' "'I don't know.' "'I love Pamela Anderson,' said Shelley. "'She's an animal rights activist, and she doesn't care what anyone thinks, "'and she had her children naturally at home with a doula.' "'Weetsy nodded. She sort of agreed. "'You look like her,' she said. "'Really? Oh, but there is no way she had all the work done that I have.' "'Sal came back from the kitchen with a bottle of Moet and poured, and poured three glasses.' "'Is she telling you her crazy stories again?' Wheatsey, drunk from the Sapporos, kept trying to remember the rhyme. "'Beer on top of wine is... mm, wine on top of beer is wine?' "'No, that wasn't it.' (laughs) "'Sal,' said Shelley, "'what's the problem, sweetie? "'You say yourself that everyone gets something done in this town?' "'But how many other mermaids have you met at this hotel?' he asked her, winking at Weetzie and handing her the glass of champagne. "'I keep looking for them,' said Shelley wistfully. "'I'd love to meet them. Do you know any Weetzie?' Weetzie shook her head, trying to figure out what to say next. Sal shrugged. "'Welcome to La La Land,' he said. "'Anything can happen.' He put on some cheesy disco music from the seventies, lay on one of the couches, and watched the women." Shelley was pinning a pita button onto the strap of her silk camisole. She looked up at Weetzie and smiled proudly like a preschooler playing dress-up. Then she leaned over and whispered, I really am a mermaid, you know, or I was one, anyway. Weetzie looked into her sad eyes. She whispered back, I believe you. It might help if you kiss me. Shelley smiled again and dabbed her lips with the tip of her tongue. Weetzie realized she had not kissed anybody in a very long time. She wondered if you could forget how. She wondered how her kiss could possibly help Shelley. The mermaid's lips tasted like salt water. As they pressed against Weetzie's lips, she felt a surge engulfing her. She was underwater, tangled in seaweed, swimming with schools of iridescent fish through dim, wet, deafening silence. A woman who resembled Shelley but older lay on a coral reef, weeping as she pried open oyster shells with her hands. As she pri- weeping as she pried open weeping as she pried open oyster shells with her hands. Instead of legs, the woman's torso sloped into the thick, scaly tail of a fish. Before she could go to the mermaid, Weetzie was lifted up toward the surface. Her head felt as if it would burst with the pressure. Then she splashed into a bright twinkling and the cry of seagulls. There was a sharp hook of pain in her hips and groin and a splatter of blood. A thick arm and hand, covered with white hair, reached out. Weetzie heard Shelley gasp. "'How did you do that?' she asked. "'What?' asked Sal eagerly. "'What did she do?' Weetzie was going to say that she didn't do anything. Sometimes her kisses were just strange that way. They took her places. They took Max's places, too, but she had never thought too much about it. The only other people she had ever kissed, really kissed, were her best friends, jerk, and duck, when they all made love to try to have a baby. She was going to say something, at least to try to answer Shelley's question, but didn't. There was something hard and cool in her mouth. She spit it out into her hand. A large, baroque pearl. Shelley saw and quickly closed Weetzie's fingers over it. Maybe you should go now, she whispered. Witsi was too astonished to do anything except get up, find her bag, mumble a quick goodbye, and leave. There was a delicate mist hanging over the gardens, just like on her prom night so long ago. She could smell the night-blooming jasmine, the gardenias, and hear the splash of fountains and chirping crickets. Phosphorescent green lights, hidden in the foliage, illuminated the pathway that wound back to her room. A chill started at the nape of her neck and slid down her spine to just above the band of her underpants. It was cool now, but the chill wasn't from that. There were footsteps behind her. Were there? She walked faster, without looking back, her stilettos ticking louder and louder as she went. She reached for her key inside the white leather purse and fitted it between her knuckles. When she got to her door, she was panting. Her hands shook as she gre- as she jabbed at the key at the lock. When she was inside, she switched on all the lights, bolted the door, and collapsed on the bed. Outside, the gardens were completely silent. Even the crickets and fountains held their breath. "'Silly,' she told herself. "'This is probably the safest place you could be.' The cleaning lady had come in to turn down the bed, leave fresh towels, and put a pink chocolate box on the pillow. But the creepy feeling lingered like the memory of fingers along Weetzie's vertebra. She untied the gold ribbons on the box and ate the chocolates. Then she fell asleep in her clothes, lights on, the mermaid's pearl still clutched in her hand. Witch
0: Max sat on the floor in Weetzie's closet for a long time. He touched different items of clothing, remembering places they had gone and things she had said. The zippered leather jacket she wore when they rode his motorcycle to the pier for the first time was the color of the cotton candy they ate when they rode the carousel. Think pink, she had said. The sleeveless sweater covered with the opalescent sequins and the cream lace miniskirt she wore on his 28th birthday made her look like Marilyn to him. He could hear her singing happy birthday in a breathy imitation of her screen idol each memory made him want a cigarette finally he realized that if he didn't do something he would go straight to the liquor store buy a pack and spend the rest of the evening in a cloud of smoke and self-loathing he hadn't noticed that night while that he hadn't noticed that night had fallen while he was in the closet he hadn't eaten anything but he wasn't really hungry if Weetzie were here, she'd have said he'd better eat because if his stomach might not feel, because his stomach might not feel empty, but his nerves were going to be as raw as sashimi in about a minute. Still, he couldn't bring himself to even think about food. If he opened the refrigerator and saw a plate of her soy cheese green chili enchiladas covered with edible orange nasturtium blossoms, he knew he would lose it. And if he didn't see something she had left for him, that would be even worse. He went outside and got on his motorcycle. He had no awareness of the air on his skin or the scents in the wind. He could have been dressed from head to toe in black leather. Max drove past the Chinese theater where Weetzie used to go to worship Marilyn's footprints in the cement. He looked up and saw the Hollywood sign where he and Weetzie had hiked the night she tried to convince him to have a baby. Even then, he had been afraid of bringing a child into the world. As grateful as he was for Cherokee and his witch baby Lily, he knew now, he knew that now he could never have been convinced. Not after the thing he saw on TV almost two years ago. Not after those people leaping out of the windows as the planes crashed through the two towers. He drove past the row of all-night Thai restaurants with their strings of Christmas lights and shrines decorated with fake flowers. He saw neon, giant neon cocktails buzzing in the air, the club where Weetzie had forced him to swing dance in a zoot suit during her rockabilly phase, the small white shop with neatly manicured hedges and rose bushes in the front. He wished he could go inside and look at the dresses hanging there in the moonlight. He ended up at a tiny bar where he used to go with Weetzie for drinks now and then. On her 30th birthday, she had worn a leopard print silk slip and go-go danced in a gold cage. But tonight no one was dancing. "'He ordered a whiskey as a reward for not buying cigarettes. "'It burned his mouth like gasoline, "'and he wondered what made him think he could take something so strong. "'All he drank now was an occasional beer. "'What if she comes and finds me?' he thought to himself. "'What, what if she was just hiding, waiting to see how I'd react, "'whether I'd pass the test? "'She will come up to me and touch my arm "'and tell me that she just wanted to know that I would miss her if she left.' Just like that time when Duck left Dirk and then they found each other in a bar in San Francisco. Magic was always happening. Someone touched his arm and he jumped. His heart slammed in his throat. He turned and saw a woman. She was about forty, slender, with short blonde hair. Even though he knew this wasn't Weetzie, part of his brain soaked in whiskey, kept trying to believe it was. "'Max,' the woman said. "'Do I know you?' "'Oh, please. I haven't changed that much, have I? Just the hair color. It's a wig. But I knew you always preferred blondes, as gentlemen do.' He patted his pockets reflexively for a pack of cigarettes. He could feel the carcinogenic burn already. "'Did she finally leave you?' the woman asked. His whole body tensed as if she had slapped him. "'Who the hell are you?' "'Oh, come on.' I know it was ages ago, but still. Of course, he knew it was Vixen. He just couldn't really accept that he had run into her on this night, just when Weetsie was gone. This wasn't the kind of magic he wanted. Vixen didn't look that much different from the night Max had slept with her. Her face was harder, though. Leave me alone, he said. Oh, then you do remember. Max got up and pushed his way toward the door. He knew without looking that VIXANWIG
1: was following him. Chapter 9. Heaven. Weetzie woke late in the morning, took a long, hot bath with a whole new bottle of bath gel that the cleaning lady had left by the freshly scrubbed tub, and shaved her legs and underarms, nicking her ankle with the razor. After she had dried off with the fresh towels and put a band-aid on the cut, she called room service. "'Glancing at the clock, she saw it was three minutes past eleven. "'Am I too late for breakfast?' she asked. "'Look outside your door,' said Pan. "'She put on her robe and peeked out. "'It was hard to imagine that she had felt afraid here. "'The sun was making the hotel look pinker than ever. "'The jacaranda trees were filled with wild parrots.' A red haired woman in a black bikini, a black beaded choker, and high heeled black sandals with three buckled ankle straps, was walking along holding the hand of her red headed toddler, laughing. On Weetie's doorstep was a silver tray. She brought it inside and took off the heavy silver cover. There were slices of honeydew, cantaloupe, watermelon, pineapple, mango. There were blueberries, blackberries, strawberries, and grapes. There was also a huge oat bran muffin as big as a cake, two perfectly poached eggs, oatmeal, freshly squeezed orange juice, and yellow tea roses in a vase. I'm just going to posit right here that this is a solid Gen Ponton list. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) This must have been where I picked it up from as a kid. (laughs) She picked up the receiver. Thank you, she said. I hope it's all right. It's perfect. Well, enjoy. Something was glowing in the light that streamed through the windows, and she saw it was the pearl from last night. She picked it up and held it to the window. It was heavy and cool. It looked like the real thing, although she knew more about rhinestones from the 50s than precious stones. Hello? Oh, uh, thank you, I will. And may I recommend, there's an amazing performer at the bar tonight. The early show isn't so packed. Her name is Heaven. That sounds divine. Okay, enjoy. He hung up, and Weetzie ate her breakfast very slowly, closing her eyes to see if she could distinguish the tastes of the different fruits, rolling the berries on her tongue, comparing their size and tang. At home, she always rushed through everything. When her girls were babies, she had gotten into the habit of swallowing whole meals without chewing. After she'd eaten, she decided to call Ping and check on the store. Ping was her best friend and, des- and a designer, and Wheatsy could never have opened the store without her help, let alone escape on an adventure. She also had the best hair in the world and could always make you feel good about yours. "'Weetsies!' Ping sang into the receiver. "'It's me!' "'Hi, honey, honey, how's it going?' "'Great, I'm having so much fun. I wish you could stay with me. Don't tempt me!' "'You could come for lunch tomorrow.' "'Yeah, that sounds good. "'Hey, we sold the Chanel.' "'You're kidding, that's great. "'And the silver Peter Fox platforms. "'Cool. "'Of course now I want the Chanel. "'You always do,' they laughed. "'Then Weetzie said, "'Has he called?' "'Of course,' Pink said. "'He called first thing. "'He keeps bugging me to tell him where you are.' "'You didn't, did you?' "'Of course not, girlfriend, but he sounds pretty desperate.' "'I don't want to talk about it,' Weetsie said. "'You asked me. Anyway, we've got a customer and Hilda's daydreaming again. I'll come tomorrow. Meet me at the front desk. We'll have lunch by the pool.' They blew kisses at each other and hung up. "'Desperate,' Weetsie thought. That wasn't what she'd expected. "'Depressed, maybe, but he hadn't felt desperately about her in years.' She noticed that, while she was talking to Ping, she had received a message on her cell phone, though she hadn't heard it ring. For a moment, she thought, Max, she had almost left the cell at home so she wouldn't have to go through this. But when she listened to the message, a voice she did not recognize, and whose gender she could not determine, said, "'Where are you? Please come home. We're all so worried. Please come home.' Weetzie shivered in the warm air, though she didn't know why. She put on her bathing suit and sunscreen and went to sit at the edge of the pool, dangling her feet in the water. No one was there except the woman in the black bikini and her son. They were splashing around, giggling uncontrollably. The woman had green eyes and the reddest hair Weetzie had ever seen. Her son kept reaching up to tug on it. He had a sweet, impish face and a very small, fragile-looking body. Wheatzie remembered how happy she had been when her children were that age. She called them her little vampires, sucking her dry, and she was almost always tired, but there was something wonderful about being needed that much. Sometimes she discovered cuts and bruises on her body that she had no recollection of getting. Her own pain was insignificant then. Being a mother could make you brave out of necessity. Now she was acutely aware of the tiny razor cut on her ankle, how the chlorine from the pool made it sting. What if I had a baby now? Weetzie thought. But it would have to be an immaculate conception. Max would never agree to it. When the woman and her son left, Weetzie dove into the water. She came up through the spangled blue, remembering the mermaid's kiss. She wondered if Max felt the things she did when she kissed him. She wondered if Max felt the things she did when she kissed him. They had never really talked about it. After they had watched those exploding twin buildings, he never pressed his lips to hers. Maybe he was afraid that even her love could not erase those images, even for a moment. Maybe he did not want to find out that this was true. Weetzie went back to her room and fell asleep. When she woke, it was evening. The soft, warm light stretched across the room like a tabby cat. Weetzie stretched with it, wiggling her toes until she shivered with pleasure. She couldn't remember the last time she'd taken an afternoon nap followed by a long stretch. She realized that she hadn't eaten much, but it wasn't really hungry, but she wasn't really hungry after her raw fish binge. Then she heard the frozen milky way singing to her it had a voice like barry white not that it was something she normally ate but she was on vacation how often was there a chocolate candy bar sitting in your freezer calling your name with sexy soul Weetzie ate it. My mouth is watering. Uh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Weetzie ate it very slowly, washed it down with a bottle of Perrier on the ice she'd collected from the ice machine in the silver bucket, and went to the closet, trying to decide what to wear. Amelia needed to be washed, because somewhere during the course of the previous night, someone had spilled beer on her. Nothing else seemed quite appropriate. Weetzie wondered if she had really... Weitzie wondered if she really had underpacked. It was a great amount. It was a great source of pride to her that she always took just the right amount of things. You had to think like Audrey Hepburn or Grace Kelly, elegant and intelligent, but with a punk edge, of course. You had to ask yourself, what would Audrey do? Just then, there was a knock. Housekeeping. Weitzie opened the door and looked out into the hallway. There was a cart, but no sign of the cleaning lady. "'Excuse me, missus, the do-not-disturb sign wasn't up,' a voice said. Weetzie noticed a large feather duster floating in the air beside the cart, moving of its own accord. She jumped back. "'What?' "'I'll come back,' said the voice. Weetzie stared as the cart wheeled away by itself down the empty hallway." She went back inside and washed her hair, putting together outfits in her head to distract her from the mystery of the invisible cleaning lady. It was just too much for her at the moment. When she got out of the shower, she put on the white satin trench over her bra and panties and belted it with the studded belt she used to wear to punk gigs twenty years ago, added her stilettos and white bag. She was set. For heaven, she thought. And it was heavenly that she didn't have to leave the grounds of the pink hotel to swim with sushi-eating mermaids and hear a diva sing in a small glass building with a domed ceiling that lit up like the planetarium. The stars on the ceiling were twinkling, and a deep, thrilling voice full of sadness and tenderness rose up. A spotlight found a slender figure in a long, white, satin dress. Heaven's face was like a melancholy porcelain mask. Later, Weetzie would try to remember what Heaven sang, but she only had a vague impression of ballads that seemed to tell her own story. There were songs about finding your real family, even when it's not the family you are born into. Finding your family and holding hands with them, and flying off into pink skies, touching down in the dark world, and then joining hands and flying off again. Only people who find their true families can survive, the song said. By the end of the show, Weetzie had cried so many tears into her ginger ale that it tasted of quinine. She stayed sitting at her table, unable to move. Her legs were weak and her chest was still thudding under the satin. She felt as if her heart might fall out and roll away if she stood up too quickly. Just then, a voice said, "'May I join you?' It was heaven.' Weetzie just nodded. She couldn't speak for a while. At last she said, Thank you. Heaven grinned. You looked like you were enjoying it, or hating it so much you had to weep, but I thought I'd take a chance. I don't know what to say, said Weetzie. She usually chattered away when she felt like this, but then she never really felt like this before. You don't need to, Heaven said. "'Your face says it all.' "'Weetsy asked, "'Do you know me?' "'And Heaven answered, "'I'm not doing my job "'if I don't make you think so.' "'But the details! "'Honey, the details are everything, right? "'You know that. "'A ginger ale on ice. "'It's really good "'if you put sushi ginger in the glass. "'A white trench belted "'with a studded pink number. "'I mean, look at the rhinestones "'on your toenails.' "'Weetsy said, when did you see my toenails? She slid her leg out from under the table and displayed the jewel flower on her big toe. Heaven shrugged. Listen, she said, I'm having a little party in my room later. Say about midnight. I'm in the cherub suite. She blew Weetzie a kiss and was off in a hush of satin. (sighs)
0: Chapter 10. Spin the Bottle. Weetzie heard laughter streaming out of Heaven's suite. The front room was so crowded it was hard to see the decor, but Weetzie could make out pale blue wallpaper covered with chubby winged baby angels, pink carpet, and pink and blue chairs with gold wings. Swinging cocktail lounge music was playing, barely audible over the laughing people. They all looked chic but somehow wacky at the same time. Maybe it was just because she had been thinking of Audrey Hepburn earlier, But Weetzie couldn't help but being reminded of the party scene in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Like any great hostess, Heaven appeared in an instant to guide Weetzie through the crush of bodies. She was wearing a short red silk kimono and high-heeled sandals and drinking champagne out of a bottle. She handed Weetzie a bottle of Perrier. I think I noticed you weren't imbibing this evening. Then she took her last sip of champagne and added, When's the last time you played Spin the Bottle? Oh, I was too scared to play in junior high, Weetzie said. Oh, honey, you've never played? We'd better do something about that. Heaven clapped her hands, and immediately a group of people formed a large circle. They sat down and began chanting, Heaven, Heaven. Their lovely hostess took out her empty champagne bottle and put it in the middle of the circle. Then she licked her lips and spun it. The bottle wobbled and finally stopped on a... Very good-looking man with dark, curly hair and lascivious lips. Weetzie realized it was Pan. Heaven smiled gleefully and opened her arms wide, but before he could get up, the bottle kept turning as if of its own volition and stopped on Weetzie. From across the circle, Pan winked at her. Heaven, he mouthed. Weetzie sat very still as Heaven turned to her. I've never kissed anyone so much prettier than I am before, Weetzie said. Well, at least not until last night, I guess. There was a mermaid. You're pretty cute yourself, said Heaven. Weetzie closed her eyes and felt Heaven's large, delicate hand take her own. She was still wearing Max's ring. Heaven turned it softly on Weetzie's finger. He misses you, she whispered into Weetzie's ear. He's doing things like sitting in the closet and sniffing your clothes, she tisked. Weetzie felt tears behind her eyelids, but she didn't open her eyes. Heaven went on, don't go home yet, though. Your necklace isn't finished. Necklace, wondered Weetzie. Then she waited while Heaven leaned over and pressed her large, lovely lips to Weetzie's smaller lips. Weetzie felt her body being lifted. She and Heaven, holding hands, rose into the air above the crowd of people and out the door of the suite into the redolent, balmy, crickety night. On their way up, palm fronds brushed roughly against their faces. The sleeves of Heaven's red kimono filled with air. Wheatsey's satin trench billowed up around her, revealing her white lace panties. Below, Wheatsey saw the pink hotel as if it were an architect's model. She saw the symmetry of the gardens, the careful placement of rose bushes, ponds, and arbors. She saw the outlying rooms and the main building, the bar, the tiled floor, the Japanese restaurant. They went on through the night. Weetzie saw her city with its tiny carline boulevards, its miniature palm trees, its jewel box lights. She saw the club where she went to a punk gig, punk gig with Dirk the first time, And the club where she danced in a go-go cage on her 30th birthday. The dome of the observatory where James Dean shot Rebel without a cause. The battered carousel at the top of the hill in Griffith Park. oh, her little store with its columns and French doors. She saw trash and homeless people and fountains and limousines. She saw the cottage that had been given to her and Dirk by Grandma Fifi when she died. And where Weetzie had spent over 20 years designing clothes, raising her children sleeping in the same bed with Max the lights were all out even the TV wasn't on everything was so dark and quiet Weetze tried to turn her head to Heaven to ask if they could stop there and look in she thought she heard Heaven's voice oh I guess he's not just sniffing in the closet now Weetze opened her eyes and realized that she had her hand in Heaven's lap right on top of Heaven's sizable erection. She moved it away, embarrassed. No problem, baby, Heaven whispered. That was a great trip. Do you do that all the time? Weetzie felt something in her mouth, making it hard for her to answer. She spit out a red stone. It's Grandma Ruby's," Heaven said, for your necklace.
1: So good! Yay! So we're going to start here for now. We're going to stop here for now. Yay. Oh, so good. I want to
0: eat all the fruit, and I want to oh dance with God. a guy who looks like a fawn. Mr. Mm. Tumnus was easily my first crush. Like, when everybody else was, like, <laughs> into... I mean, that would be too early for new kids, but, like, you know, Dukes of Hazard and, like, soap opera stars and stuff, and I was like,
1: I want... Tumness is my AI character on Moonbase Theta Out. Oh! Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, there's some there's some extra bonus content going up right now, and it's all very fucking meta, and it's so good, and I'm so proud of our whole team and of Deej, and uh, I'll give a little plug to Moonbase Theta Out if you guys like audio fiction. It's so well done. Um, it's beautiful. It's very queer. It's uh, lots of feelings and space crises and um, and diversity and uh, I have a really crazy, crazy cool plot uh, going on and I'm just very proud of Deej. Nice, that's great. Yeah. Okay, boo. So, recommendations are Swimply, uh, Glennon Doyle's Untamed, so good. I think she also probably has like a podcast um, although I haven't delved into that yet, and um, definitely anything and everything by Francesca Lea Block, uh, and Janish Meeting. Oh, and Janish Meeting. Oh my God, and Rutherford Falls on on Peacock. So important. Um, okay, that's 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 more recommendations than we ever have. That's so okay. good.
0: I know. So <laughs> many things.
1: <laughs> All right, fuck buddies. We love you. We miss you. Um, uh, have a neat
0: summer. <laughs> Have a neat summer. I hope your summer is peachy keen.
1: Peachy keen? Golly. Mm, That makes (laughs) me want peach ice cream. Fuck. That homemade shit from your church, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but, that is also, that immediately just reminded
0: me of Typhoid Mary. (laughs) Yep. The peach Melba that she would stir with her dirty ass It was ice cream. Yeah, yeah. It was ice cream. But it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was. Was it ice cream? Is Peach it Melba was? ice cream? Hang it, a was, it
1: was It uh, was. Yeah, I want to say it was. It was because her, her whatever it was. Yeah,
0: because whatever it was, it wasn't pasteurized. Typhoid mm-hmm. Mary Peach. Oh, Peach Peach Melba is Peach ice cream. Apparently.
1: Oh, weird. Definitely thought it was a toast situation.
0: <laughs> oh, but it's not. I I can't fathom that it would be. Maybe Melba toast is just ice cream toast. I want oh no! I found a recipe for Typhoid Mary's peach melba. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's how it's served. It's peach ice cream on top of cake. Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um. Herk. If you guys, if you guys don't know how Typhoid Mary became Typhoid Mary, first of all, it's a really good episode of My Favorite Murder. Yeah, it <laughs> it's is delightful. Um, and Karen does it, and it's just um. It she became typhoid Mary because she would stir pots of specifically of of the of this peach ice cream. She'd like peel the peaches with her dirty, grubby hands, and then she'd stir it all with her arm. And she, I believe, she was giving people typhoid.
0: Yeah, she was um, a, a <laughs> non-symptomatic carrier, which we know yes. all about right now.
1: Oh, uh, God. Yeah, yeah.
0: So she was fine, and she was like, "What are you talking about? I've never gotten sick." And they were like, "Lady." You have to sit on this island with a dog for the rest of your life because you can't. She, and she wouldn't wouldn't Stop making ice
1: cream. She wouldn't stop.
0: She wouldn't stop. She, like, went for a job as a washerwoman somewhere. Right, and right. then they found her again because she was, like, she just couldn't help herself. She was, like, I got to cook. I got yeah, a passion.
1: Yeah. She kept doing it. She kept getting hired by different families.
0: Crazy. Literally just killing dozens of people. Oh, my God.
1: Typhoid! But boy, does this peach melba look delicious! Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Oh, fuck, I'm so hungry. And I just read about Francesca Lea Block's food. I'm so hungry.
0: Ooh, honey, goat cheese, and chamomile ice cream? Ooh, this fuck. is a blog called Adventurous Ice Creams.
1: Yes! that sounds like a Van Lewins or however you pronounce that mm-hmm. name. Yeah. Fuck, I am very hungry. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Go eat. Well... That's it.
0: Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>